Good, okay, this session is entitled Jonah's Meltdown and How to Avoid Having One of Those Yourself. Jonah's Meltdown and How to Avoid Having One of Those Yourself. Uh, we're going to read from the beginning of chapter 4. In fact, just back up, final verse of chapter 3. Can someone read the final verse of chapter 3 out loud, really loud? So I don't have it on my screen. Verse 10. Yep. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we know what the next verse is going to say, right? Jonah rejoiced. Uh, here we go, chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you were kind. Now, O oh Lord, now listen to this, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And then we're not told what Jonah's answer was, but we can guess. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So he was holding out hope still that God would nuke it. Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any rights to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their hand their right hand from their left, I guess that's spiritually speaking, and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city. All right, this is, uh, this is a proper meltdown. He, he mentions, and, and like it's comic, right? We get sucked in by the humor, but there's absolute devastation and personal it, this is a full-on meltdown this guy's having. He, it's announced several times in different ways. I'm not just furious, I want to die. 
I don't want to live, I want to die. It just comes again and again, I want to die. So we're going to look at um, some stabilizers. Um, and within the stabilizers, we'll touch a little bit on different aspects of this book of Jonah, but you know it well. So this dear man is having a meltdown. Uh, now, fortunately, he comes through it. How do we know that? Well, he was the one telling the story. So he leaves us hanging, doesn't he? The book just ends. It's like there's not a proper chap. There's not a. There's not a. Epilogue. There's nothing at the end. It's just God says, "Shall I not be concerned about that great city?" And it's part of the the skill of writing this book. That at one level we think that's no way to end a book. Did he come through? Did he commit suicide? How did he do? Well, the way it ends tells us that. In fact, the way the whole book is told, it's told with such self-awareness by Jonah. He was the only one with himself the whole way through this book. The self-awareness, the, um, how he pokes fun at himself, how he displays himself, that's all indicative of he learned things in the Lord and came through. So that's good to know. But let's draw some stabilizers for ourselves from this. Stabilizer number one, and it's the biggest one, and if I only was able to make one point, this would be it, but I want to make it fairly briskly and then move on to some practical assisting stabilizers. Big stabilizer number one is make sure Jesus is your only Lord. He's the ultimate stabilizer. So throughout the book of Jonah, which you know, Jonah is a mystery to us. We've been puzzled by his spiritual schizophrenia. So we go into the book knowing that he's a respected prophet in Israel, mature and stable. Please say mature and stable. Don't you feel like that some days? Um. And then we get into the book, and he, the first thing we see is uh, he runs away. And he then on the ship sleeps when the sailors are trying to save the ship. He, so he runs from God, and he's completely apathetic. He is selfish and immature. So Monday, mature and selfless. Tuesday, selfish and immature. That's on the boat. And then he rallies on the boat. On Wednesday, he gets to the place of saying, throw me overboard that you might live. He's back to being mature and selfless. That's Wednesday. Gets thrown into the sea, and he stays there on Thursday in the belly of the whale. He's just all scripture and God, and you've done this to me, but you will bring me through, and you are gracious, and I've been holding on to idols, but God's grace and your salvation Wednesday and Thursday, he's in the Word and he's mature. And then he gets vomited up onto the beach and he hits Nineveh on Friday. And he, we're not quite sure, depends how you read it. Anointed, powerful in ministry, or does he do the absolute bare minimum? Because we're told it's a three day across the city, he goes one day, he just says repent. He doesn't really throw himself into the preaching. We're not sure how he's doing. And then God spares preacher's dream, revival hits, and 
On Saturday, you'd expect him to stay where he was, mature, God-honoring, selfless, but he crashes here in chapter 4 to immature, selfish, petulant, vindictive, an absolute crybaby. So he's a, he's, a, he's a puzzle to us. What's going on with him? Well, we're told here, he's been carrying this loathing for Nineveh. That was his thing. It's not my thing. I've got another thing. His thing is throughout his, just the destruction of Nineveh just was a huge thing in his life. He actually says, he says, this is why I didn't even want to go. And the whole book, like the question mark is removed. Ah, so that's why he ran away. Because you know in chapter one you think, it's just too extreme. God says go and preach to Nineveh. Why didn't he just say, "Uh, not yet, and stay? But he's absolutely over the top. He goes in the other direction to Tarshish. It's, it's, and you, when you're preaching through the book, you try and explain it in chapter one, but you can only get halfway there because it says that is an overreaction. But now we know he's carried this, this political, foreign affairs, racist loathing of the Ninevites, and they were brutal and treated Israel very badly. But when God finally pardoned them, he says, this was the thing that's been eating me up. That was his thing. So he was clearly leaning too hard for support on something that wasn't Jesus. And then when that thing didn't go the way he wanted, he flipped out. He melted down. So let's think of two analogies. The first one is to do with feet. So uh, my left foot is on Jesus. And my right foot, because he, he gives me support. He's a savior. And my right foot is on damage to the Ninevites or that a certain political party will win in November. And I, I, I love Jesus, but this is very important to me as well. Now then, if my foot that's on Jesus is on Jesus rather than in Jesus, then when this other thing that my spiritual balance is on is fine, no movement or moving the way I want it to go, I'm stable. But if this one shifts in a direction I don't like, and my foot here is just on Jesus, I go wheels up, melt down, flip out. So, to make Jesus our Lord, we mustn't have this foot on Jesus. We must have it in Jesus and right down deep to about here. Because if it's just here, I can break my knee. If this one, if the, if the rug gets pulled out under this one, I break my knee. But if I'm up to Jesus here, the rock of ages, and the cement, the, the wet cement concrete of Jesus right down to here, if this thing in my life, political disappointment, relational disappointment, sickness, 
ministry not going the way I want it. Whatever happens here, I will feel it, which is appropriate because I'm flesh, but I won't fall over. No meltdown, no flip out. I'll just get achy and it won't be pretty, but Jesus is my Lord. Then the other one is to do with our hearts. Our hearts love us. And our hearts, PJ Smythe's heart, he does the best for PJ Smythe that he possibly, possibly can. And he says, PJ, I know because the psychologists tell me, and we can see that in scripture as well, that you have fundamental needs for security, significance. And I want to help you get security, significance, and identity. So I, PJ's heart, this is now my heart's antenna, I have an antenna always looking for what will give PJ security, satisfaction, and significance. It's scouting for me because it knows that I need them. It's a fundamental mental need. And then, oh, happy day when my heart finds Jesus. Uh, I eat of, my heart learns of Here's from him, if you eat of me, you'll never hunger. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. And my heart says, PJ, we lock, we're locking on to Jesus on that happy day. And my heart has served me so well. And then my heart, because it's still a fallen heart, uh, doesn't serve me so well. It keeps, it's locked onto Jesus, but then it keeps out two little antennas, just for FOMO's sake, we don't want to miss out. There might be something else out there that can give you fundamental satisfaction, security, significance, and identity. So it just keep deep. It's not do, 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 do. It's because we found Jesus, right? But my former heart just thinks, I've got to keep options open. You never know. And we lock on to, you know, a political position or a racial position or a relational position or a financial position. We just got to keep our options up. Stabilizer number one is do this. <laughs> do it again on Tuesday <laughs> and on Wednesday. And when you're in your 40s, you'll do it every day. In 50s. And we'll keep doing it. Your heart is there. You are born again. But help your heart. It's mostly right. Help it be all right. And feet. Deep. And then do keep your foot on things. Hold political positions. Be involved in relationship. Give yourselves to people. But it's on, not in. If you're like this, it's all about Jesus. No good to man or beast on earth. No, we've got to be on things, just not in them. That's stabilizer number one. Stabilizer number two. Build in physical and emotional rhythms of rest. So I'm sure you've figured out, but the Bible does teach this. We are an, we are an integrated blend of physical, emotional, and spiritual. And it's sometimes a bit hard to know when one ends and the other begins. 
When God made Adam, he made him out of the dust of the ground. It's physical. But he also, he breathed his spirit into him. Physical, emotional, spiritual. And the physical and the emotional impacts the spiritual. It's not just that your faith is weak, necessarily. It's that the physical and the emotional are knocking your faith. And if we help the emotional and the physical, we'll help your faith. So Jonah had gone through a great deal in recent days, hadn't he? He had the stress of of overt disobedience. We can live in that, can't we? So I am living in disobedience. Maybe something small or something big. That's stressful. Uh, He had the stress of the storm. Imagine that. He had the stress of sacrificing himself. He knew not that a whale was going to save him. He went through the stress of saying, give me up to death. And then imagine being in the whale. He had no clue he was going to come out of the whale alive. This was an intensely stressful three days. He was probably lying down, terrible smells, oxygen-deprived, probably vomiting, dehydrated, and he, he was just in the law, but he was waiting for death. And then the, the euphoria of being vomited out onto the beach. And then the terror and the adrenaline and the anointing of preaching on a Sunday morning, I mean preaching to the Ninevites, would they kill him? Would they love what he says? What will that group of Ninevites say? What will that group say? He must have been, he was emotionally and physically exhausted when he gets to chapter four. He's showing definite signs of burnout. He's overreacting to very small things, like sunburn. He's got a distorted view of reality. He is honestly bleak that Nineveh isn't nuked by God. He was hoping that his preaching the judgment of God would bring the judgment of God, rather than bringing their repentance that would bring the mercy of God. Distorted view of reality. He really thought that. And he was completely self-absorbed. Me and my shade and me, yes, me. This is, this is signs of burnout, overreacting to small things, completely self-absorbed, distorted view of reality. I think this is the biggest meltdown we see in Scripture, with the possible exception of what Stan read to us. Elijah and 1 Kings 19 had this big success, big stress, And verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there, and he went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. It's just like Jonah. 
Then he lay down and fell asleep, and at once the angel touched him, and the angel laid his wings on him that he might be filled with the Spirit. No, the angel touched him and said, you need to eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a prayer team. No, by his head was a cake of bread over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and they lay down again, repeated. The Bible says love is patient, and love is... And one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience and kindness. So PJ, what will help PJ be patient and PJ be kind? Well, fruits of the Spirit are kindness and patience, so I need to pray to be filled with the Spirit, that I might be loving, which is patient and kind. I need the Spirit. I need prayer. But I also know that when I sleep well and rest well and eat well and drink well, I am more patient and kind and loving. My wife is agreeing. Sleep makes us kinder. Rest makes us kinder. Vacation makes us kinder. Charles Spurgeon, who was all about Jesus, all about the Spirit, all about the Father's love, he spoke of breathing country air. Holy in action, a stiff walk in the wind's face. He said, these are the surest tonics for the declining. Refreshments for the weary. He referred to these things as great remedies. And he wasn't talking about prayer and the spirit. He he does a lot in other messages. (laughs) Here he was talking about Eat, sleep, move, rest. Great remedies. Stabilizer number three. Settle that you will always be a work in progress. I've got two thoughts on this. On settle that you will always be a work in progress. Thought number one is I wonder if Jonah was, although he was quite an experienced prophet, I think he might have been naive about after-action blues. Because after, like you know if you're a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church, you know that after significant output, we are internally vulnerable. And we're actually, whether your output leads to what you would consider success or your output leads to disappointing lack of fruit, we're vulnerable with both. Maybe particularly when we're laboring seemingly for no reward. After action blues. And he should have known that. And he should have said to himself as he walked out of Nineveh, okay, I know myself, I'm gonna be grumpy pants for the next couple of days. I've been through a lot, 
That's been both successful and disappointing to me simultaneously. <laughs> They've all listened to my preaching and I wish they didn't. <laughs> I'm going to be grumpy pants and I know I'm going to be prone to overreact. I'm going to be prone to get a distorted view of reality. Oh, the church and those people who weren't there. And there. I'm going to get a victim mentality. And I'm going to get cheeky with God and people close to me. Or I'm going to withdraw. But I know I'm prone, after action blues, to say, God, I think he was a little naive about that. Thought number two is he seemed unwilling, he seemed unwilling to keep learning from the Lord in the little things. On big things. So we just got a log that as he writes this, he is emphasizing to us how kind God was. Just asking God, you know, God's asking him questions. It's a good counseling technique, isn't it? Do you have any right to be angry? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's like, Jonah, shh. <laughs> when your wife asks you a question, when a fellow elder, when the Lord don't answer too quick. He'd, he'd, he'd had some good days, man. Sacrificing himself for the sailors. In the belly of the fish. In the city of Nineveh. Boom, boom, boom. But he should have just been aware he's going to keep having stuff to learn. Little things to learn on Monday. Even though he was so anointed on Sunday. So, brothers and sisters, when God uses you in the morning and you're grumpy in the afternoon, don't be surprised. <laughs> you're a work in progress. You know, you're a small group leader and you usher in the Shekinah glory of God. It's Wednesday, 7.30 to 9.30. It's just like your home is like the Holy of Holies. And then 10.30, you're kicking the dog. It's, like, it's not this big surprise. You're a work in progress. We've got some great friends called Francois and Liz Hunis. They've led a church in South Africa for many years. And so they were just great sort of friends and mentors and things to us. And Francois was, you know, he was, he was an up and down guy. And um, had this great church. He no longer leads it. Um, handed it over. But Francois, it's a small town that he had this church in. And one day he was driving around um, past the Francois. Wonderful church. And this woman cuts him off in the road. So he winds down his window. He's furious. And he shouts out, you stupid cow! <laughs> anyway, it was his bad luck that this woman was in his church. <laughs> but it was his good luck that she was a mature woman, and she knew that both she and Francois were works in progress. And that he could simultaneously be her pastor and shout, you stupid cow. <laughs> she was a mature woman. So... <laughs> 
So she, she, told, she told one of the elders about this, not to rat on Francois, uh, you know, and to um, bring a disciplinary hearing against pastor. She just, she just told them and thought it was pretty funny. So that Sunday, uh, the word gets around the church, word gets around the town. And so that Sunday, um, two of the elders hire a, a pantomime cow suit. You know, and dress up, you know, one of them like this and the other one like this. And, and they come in and they tell the story and there's hilarity and laughter and we happen to be in the house. And honestly, as a young pastor, I just thought, this, this is maturity. This is how you should handle stuff like that. You know, it looked comical and frivolous. It wasn't. It was profound and beautiful. It was stabilizer number three. Hey, we're a work in progress. It's not a surprise. And Francois said his sorries, and you know, it, we're not just being dismissive and silly, but it was just a beautiful, beautiful little cameo. Don't be, don't be surprised. Don't be too disappointed in yourself when you're, oh, and then is this the same? Yes, it's the same person. <laughs> You're a work in progress. Stabilizer number four, acquire, acquire a big, displacing, evangelistic vision. Stabilizer four, acquire a big, displacing, evangelistic vision. Jonah's lack of big vision for Nineveh for others and for the Lord's agenda made him vulnerable to personal, especially vulnerable to personal discouragement. To say it another way, a big vision helps us not sweat the small stuff. To say it another way, a hunting dog doesn't even know he's got fleas. So where you live, you might not like where you live, but having a vision for God's kingdom to come in the place where you live will, will take much of the frustration and disappointment away about the place where you live. Yeah, it's not an easy place to live and I don't much like it, but God's kingdom is coming. We're short on money this month but we still tithed. The devil didn't get us, we did that first. And although we're feeling it, we're having to negotiate, and we still tithed. It takes the sting out of, you know, a tough month. We're more resilient to temptation when we're about the work of God. Remember, David got into trouble, didn't he, with Bathsheba. He stayed back at the palace, and we were told explicitly it was the season when kings go off to war, but David stayed. He was more susceptible because he stayed. COVID. Dips and disappointment in our ministries. I think, oh, we've got to rebuild. To have a big vision for the kingdom of God coming in our generation will help see us through. So, hey, we've got many more lives, years by God's grace to live. We, we have a few difficult years, 
God's kingdom. The next generation. It helps. It doesn't eliminate, but it helps, right? Stabilizer number five. Be in team slash community. Uh, no criticism of Jonah here. It didn't seem like he had the possibility of being in team, but it's a good moment just to, to, just to leverage. Note that he wasn't and how it could have helped if he was. Jesus sent them out one by one or two by two? Um, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, I had an ho- open door. The Lord opened the door. So this was a God-open door, but my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. We're designed for community. We must be in community. Friends, family, team, eldership team. We must be in it. Healthy spirituality is a combination of truth and community, isn't it? So that's why we prefer in-person meetings, safe in-person meetings, to online meetings, because online alone you get truth, but in person you get truth and community. Of course, you can leverage online for as much community as possible, but that's why we fight for community. Poor old Jonah didn't have that. Maybe if he had a, a friend with him, he would have just been more stable. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, do not give up meeting together. We've got to figure out, keep figuring out how to do it. Community. Stabilizer six, this is the penultimate one. Be in, be in scripture. So Jonah has two low moments, really low moments, and in both low moments he prays. So low moment number one is in chapter two, in the belly of the whale. And he prays. And in chapter four, outside Nineveh, he's very, very low. And he prays. In chapter two, he prays from scripture. His prayer, he cobbles together verses from the Psalms, different places in the Psalms. And his whole prayer is a psalmic prayer. He obviously knew the Psalms off by heart and pulled these scriptures into his prayer. And as a result, his low moment and his prayer was God-focused. In chapter four, his prayer is spontaneous. And as a result, it's him-focused. Two low moments, two prayers. One took him into the Lord and one kept him out of the strength of the Lord. And the difference was, I think, Scripture. Scripture helps us pray with appropriate emotion, but without getting swallowed up by our own emotion. And us, us charismatics, um, spontaneous is wonderful and authentic, and it can also be so unhelpful. <laughs> Liturgy, don't want that. Yes, sometimes we want that. I went to Church of England schools for from aged eight to 18, I had to go to school chapel every day, singing hymns, reading liturgy. I turned 50 next year, I remember words from liturgy that I can use. Scripture, it steadies me. It's so helpful, friends, when we're having prayer meetings, sometimes not not to say, oh, just, you know, fire at will. Say, look, let's, let's pray Psalm 145 together. 
You know, you, someone pray out of Psalm 1, at verse 1. And then if anyone else wants to pray into verse 1, pray next. But then the next prayer must be from Psalm 2. Turns, uh, verse 2, turn it into a prayer. And then give a prayer. Anyone else from verse 2? No, then verse 3. And we're turning Scripture into prayers. And we're leaning into the Lord, but with his truth. And it can lift us, like it did Jonah in chapter 2. And stabilizer number 7 is come to the great Jonah, which is basically, remember stabilizer number one? (laughs) We're up to our thigh in the rock of ages, come to the great Jonah. You know, Jesus spoke about the sign of Jonah. It wasn't really being in the uh, belly of the whale three days as much as the sacrifice that Jonah, Jonah said, sacrifice me that the sailors would live. Jesus was sacrificed for the world. Jonah came to Nineveh, Jesus came to the earth. And Jonah pointed, spoke about God, Jesus was God. Um, In our prayer time a little earlier today, my wife Ash um, said this is what Jesus says, come to, not go there. If you're weary and heavy laden, come to, not, I can point you in the right direction. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will fix you. Come to me, the great Jonah. Jonah's meltdown and how not to have one of those ourselves. God brought him through. God can bring us through. God can avert a meltdown, bring you out of a meltdown. He's so good.